the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As a constitutional law attorney, former senior legal advisor and personal counsel to President Donald J. Trump, Jenna Ellis believes in the rule of law and the importance of integrity in our elections. And she's ready to tackle the big cultural and legal issues facing America. This is The Jenna Ellis Show. Here is your host, Jenna Ellis. Happy Tuesday, friends, and welcome to The Jenna Ellis Show. I love going to conferences where I get to actually meet my Twitter friends because inevitably they're so much more fun in person than even on Twitter. And that's saying something when your friend is James Lindsay, who goes by at Conceptual James. I know you all follow him. Uh, his Twitter is not New York Times bestselling author. We need to change that, obviously. Math PhD, founder of New Discourses, and for all kinds of freedom, you have to follow him. It's great. Before we get to James, though, I want to tell you about my friends at Legacy Precious Metals. Now is the time for Americans to take steps to protect our finances and retirements. When times are turbulent, you need an asset that protects you, and that's why I believe in investing in gold and trust my friends at Legacy Precious Metals. Gold offers a hedge against inflation and protects you from the volatile financial markets. Legacy Precious Metals is a company that you can trust to give you good and patient counsel for your personal situation. Their team of experts has decades of experience helping Americans like you and me make the right decision for ourselves and our families. So call Legacy Precious Metals today at 866-528-1903. That's 866-528-1903. Or visit them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com and download their free investor's guide. So James Lindsay and I were both speakers at the Standing for Freedom Center hashtag Freedom Uncensored conference at Liberty University this past weekend. Our good friend Ryan Helfenbein invited us both. And James, thanks so much for joining me today on the Jenna Ellis Show. Really appreciate it. Hey, I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So um, you are a very fascinating person. I learned so much from you. I could just sit there and listen to you talk for a long time. So um, I, in thinking about this show and what I wanted to uh, give my listeners an opportunity to hear from you, because they should all obviously follow you and probably already do. Um, one of the things that you were describing to me was this idea of, because we're talking in the context of the left and their actual agenda and this is so much bigger than anybody even realizes. And in the context of hyper-reality, the metaverse, and uh, what the left's motivation to get us away from reality and truth, um, talk about that and define that because I think it's just such a fascinating concept. Yeah, it's actually a fairly complicated concept. It comes from a postmodern philosopher named John Baudrillard. Uh, the film The Matrix was supposed to be an attempt to depict hyper-reality made into reality. And so that gives people kind of a uh, 
you know, a link to understand what it what it's like. Um, and of course, now with this metaverse thing coming out of Facebook and whatever else we're seeing, you know, kind of this attempt to really put us into something that looks a bit like the Matrix. And so what hyperreality is for Baudrillard is this state in which everything has become a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy to where the original has been lost. And it, he, he gives this analogy in his book, Simulation and Simulacra. I think I always say that backwards, Simulacra and Simulation, which, by the way, is featured at the beginning of The Matrix. Uh, Neo pulls out when he's got his, like, secret disk drive at the very beginning of the film. He pulls out, and he's hiding all of his contraband in a hollowed-out book, which is uh, simulation, or Simulacra and Simulation by Baudrillard. So it is nodding to that. The idea he gives in, in there is, is this idea of a map. That the, imagine we have this these team of cartographers that have made a perfect replica map of the entire world, down to the finest detail, even to you know where where your furniture is in your house, one to one perfect map at at scale. And he says, you know, the idea of hyper reality is that people become more concerned with the map than the terrain that it that it actually describes, and they actually try to start to live in the map. So that if you say draw a new tree on the map then you act as though that tree is real, even though it's not there in reality. Uh, and in fact, what he says is that when you live in hyper-reality, you forget that real reality is there and is supposed to be the thing that's being described by this map. He calls this state of affairs when you get all the way trapped in hyper-reality the desert of the real. So that it's like you're in this huge desert, there's no water anywhere, except what's missing isn't water, it's reality. And so what it's actually describing, what Baudrillard is describing, is the state that you live in when you live in a mass media narrative-driven environment, which is amplified now. He wouldn't have known that by social media, to where you literally can create entire false narratives or pseudo-realities, as, as the Catholic philosopher Joseph Pieper called them um, in the 70s, where what's real ceases to matter, as a matter of fact. And so the left's agenda with all of this kind of narrative-driven stuff is to force us to live in a hyper-reality where their narrative, their their claim about how reality is working or what really happened, say, on January 6th or any other time or with COVID-19 or with the Gulf War or with 9-11, their narrative about that is the thing that's treated as, taken as true. And anybody who doesn't believe it must be insane. They've fallen out of the matrix. They, they, they're absolutely disconnected from the fake reality that is now mistaken for the real reality. So this is really fascinating in how the media is using this tool of hyperreality to shift the narrative. And even though there's evidence in reality of truth, to say basically that truth doesn't matter. And so you also described um, th this example of hyperreality with strawberries and how this is an example of how we get the copy of the copy of the copy and how the mainstream media is using this hyperreality to to make us not even care about the reality that exists. Right. So, I mean, the, the strawberry example comes from my friend who goes by Vocal Distance on Twitter. Uh, he's anonymous, so we won't name him for real. But uh, he, he said, imagine, you know, that you have this idea you, that you, there are wild strawberries and somebody found them and they said, these are great. And then someday somebody said, let's cultivate these. And they did, you know, selective breeding and they made bigger, better strawberries. And so now you have this artificially bred copy of the wild strawberry. And then somebody says, let's grind it up and turn it into candy and uh, add sugar and crystallize it. And now we have strawberry candy that approximates the flavor 
two, two levels of copy. And somebody says, well, we don't really need to grind up strawberries. We could just use artificial flavoring and sugar and make a strawberry candy that just has the essence of the strawberry, but we don't even need real strawberries involved. And so now you have another layer of copies. And somebody says, let's, maybe it's the Jolly Rancher company, for example, let's make our strawberry candy into a soda that's flavored like the strawberry candy with the artificial flavoring. So now you have artificially flavored strawberry soda that's a replica of a candy that's a replica of a of a different candy that's a replica of a cultivated strawberry, it's a replica of a wild strawberry. Then eventually 7-Eleven comes along and says, let's turn that soda into a Slurpee. And so he gave this example, my friend did, of, of walking with his son and his son drinking the uh, strawberry Jolly Rancher Slurpee and enjoying this, you know, as he would as a kid. And it's got the picture, a little cartoon picture of a strawberry on the cup, we, got, we might imagine. And then he sees growing on the side of the sidewalk, you know, some wild strawberries. And he looks at it and he says, that looks like what's on my cup. And he reaches down and he picks the wild strawberry. And he says, dad, what's this? And he says, that's a wild strawberry. It's just, you know, like in your drink. And the kid tastes the wild strawberry, which is the original, and says, yuck. This doesn't taste like a strawberry at all because he's lived completely in hyper-reality uh, of the, the Slurpee that's the copy of the copy of the copy of the copy of the copy to where the original is is lost and, in fact, seems wrong and foreign and evil to him. And that's the idea of creating a, you know, images-based or, or media-based hyper-reality that you can't even tell what's real. You don't know maybe what the entire history of the 20th century is. Um, Baudrillard gave a similar example. I think he gave a similar example. I know that on the back of his work, a similar example has been given. I don't want to attribute it to him if he didn't do it. Um, where, you know, you have fashion models. And so you have the most absolutely, you know, picture-perfect women dressed, you know, with super tailored outfits that so they're more beautiful than real women can possibly be and they're taking you know photographs with perfect lighting and perfect angles and 100 photographs and they only pick the best one and then it goes a step further and there's crazy amounts of makeup applied to make it even more perfect and then there's airbrushing and then there's photoshop and then by the end you now have fashion models that are more attractive than any real woman could possibly be and there's this weird disconnection for him. He said what happens is when you live this way, you're in a sense alienated from everything. And this is where the leftist agenda kind of creeps in. If they can contour reality to be completely fake and get people to believe that real reality is distasteful and alienating, the goal of leftism for for all the way since Marx has been to alienate people from their conditions so that they'll become revolutionaries. And so the goal of creating this media hyper-reality is to condition people to believe certain things about the world to not know what's really going on. And then when they find out the truth is to feel alienated by the truth. So they'll want to be revolutionaries to overthrow the system. Um, it's a very insidious program and it's exactly the kind of broad psychological operation that we've all lived in, uh, at least since the rise of broadcast media and corporate media, but certainly amplified by social media. And I'm talking with James Lindsay, who uh, is at conceptual James on Twitter, founder of new discourses and, uh, James, this is such a fascinating concept, I think, for a lot of people, especially who have seen The Matrix and, you know, we all talk about being red-pilled and, and that kind of thing. Um, do you think that the rise of social media and, and a lot of these alternative uh, medium is helpful to get back to reality? Or how how do we combat this so that people who are caught up in this hyper-reality and they're, and they're believing the narrative and they feel distanced from truth and they don't they, they think that truth is a lie um is that helpful or are we just creating even more copies of the copies of the copy i mean it's possible i mean metaverse or whatever is obviously copies of 
literally, it's not even copies. This is really getting toward hyperreality, where Baudrillard said there isn't even an original anymore when we get all the way to hyperreality. Everything's just a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy with no original. It's just all fabrication all the way down. And so there is that scary aspect to this. And so I think we're actually at a point where there's a choice. Um, Baudrillard despaired of hyperreality. He wasn't, he wasn't saying that this is how things should be. He was saying, oh, no, this is how things are, how bad. And, of course, being a... a kind of postmodernist, he's blamed capitalism for everything. Um, but I think he actually was giving a otherwise robust description of things that were happening as a warning, uh, not as something we should be moving toward. And what I actually am watching with social media, I'm actually very optimistic. I think social media is actually the answer. I think, you know, the attempts to brand things as misinformation and disinformation are the uh, flailing attempts of a dying regime to grasp onto that level of control they had when they could control the broadcasters. But now that everybody is, in a sense, a broadcaster, they can't control the broadcasters anymore, so they're trying desperately. And what I actually think is, we mentioned red-pilling, I think that the Internet is going to actually red-pill people. Once you see that you've been lied to on one thing you care about, you start questioning other things you've 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 been maybe lied to. And then what we're seeing is just person after person after person very rapidly right now under the conditions where, you know, they're very ham-fistedly trying to force different pseudo-reality or hyper-real conditions on us. We're seeing a massive red pilling. I think what's actually happening is that we're, we're entering into a state of information freedom that they're desperately trying to control before it breaks loose because it's going to expose them as false experts, expose many of them as criminals, uh, and it's going to topple the information-led regime they've been running for 50 years without us realizing it. Yeah, and I think it's it's important also to recognize that people do inherently, human beings yearn after truth. We know that truth is a fundamental part of reality, and there's a measurable difference between right and wrong, good and evil, truth versus falsity. And it shocks me some to see that there are some leftists who even when they see the truth and they're confronted with this, they don't care. They would rather believe in a narrative than the truth. And they, they're they almost in, in a post-truth reality to say, well, it doesn't matter anymore. All that matters is my narrative. And that's part of the left's conditioning. And we, we talked also, James, about um, kind of almost a post Marxist, if I can frame it that way, you probably have a better descriptor of that, of the leftist agenda of being fully nihilistic and just saying, you know, we're not even trying to get to um, to Marxism, but we're actually trying to get beyond that into uh, nothing matters, eternal doesn't matter, um, the world doesn't matter anymore. And that's, in some sense, some of these people who've been conditioned almost operate in that where even when they're confronted with the truth, just seem to not care. Yeah, that's right. So with, with the, the post-truth aspect, there are a lot of psychological things, and we could talk for, I think, probably over an hour about that, where um, it's it's very difficult to admit that you've been been bamboozled in this regard. And it's actually more comforting to just start to try to embrace the fact that even if this is a conditioned, administered false reality, that, um, you know, at least it, it it's something I can make sense of. So the idea, for example, that our institutions have broadly been lying to us and manipulating us and that we maybe have been living under a semi-totalitarian state for maybe decades without realizing it is a very difficult thing for people to grasp. People want to be able to predict how the world might work. They want to be able to make 
you know, bets about what they're going to be able to do in the future. And to think that all of a sudden they're, that they're realizing that the institutions don't work and that they have not been working for a while is a very difficult thing for them to, you know, grapple with because it means the world isn't predictable for them anymore and that they've been wrong about it, especially if they've been arguing for it. So the post-truth condition where people are embracing kind of a false narrative as a security blanket is part of it. Part of it also is that when you live in a false reality and everything boils down to, to narratives, what ultimately comes down, it all comes down to is the strength of the narrative, which is a form of power. This is something else the postmodernist philosophers understood is that that when you're only in in a condition of narrative then everything is actually just an assertion of power and the left's program for decades or centuries or a century at least has just been a complete focus on power how to gain power how to seize the means of for marx material production for the postmodernists and the neo-marxists the means of cultural production so that they can gain control so um, people who have been, you know, kind of brainwashed into, or programmed to think only in terms of power are going to find this comforting and understandable and comprehensible. So that's one side. As far as post-Marxism goes, that's also correct. Um, Post-Marxism really is something that evolved starting in the late 60s going into the 70s. Um, it was this kind of despair looking back as Khrushchev came out and told about the sins and crimes of Stalin that all of a sudden, you know, this is kind of administered bureaucratic socialism that was going on in the Soviet Union was a catastrophe. And then eventually the the truth about China came out, and this also was a catastrophe. And so what you find are these kind of despairing people who are, are Marxist in orientation or leftist in orientation saying, well, we can't go back to capitalism. We can't believe in liberalism. We can't go back to traditionalism. We can't go back to religion. What's left is nothing, nothing. We don't even have Marxism anymore. We have nothing. We have no vision. And so they switched into what, what the post or the neo-Marxist philosophers called um, negative thinking, completely into negative thinking. All there is is to uh, do the opposite of whatever is established. They have this ethic that's an anti-ethic. Whatever the, the good is, do the opposite. Subvert the good. Whatever the beautiful is, do the opposite. Subvert the beautiful. And they've entered into this kind of nihilistic despair that's this kind of unbelievable glorified cult of the self but of being a kind of leftist ideology has to be rooted in contradiction and so the contradiction is it's a self that's made to live within a community an individual made to live in the community Uh, and so what they do is enforce tremendous community standards and they say with intersectionality make you think in terms of your group identity you know you're not an individual you're a member of this racial community and that sex community and that sexual community and that ability status community and whatever else Um, and so you have to think of yourself and your individuality in terms of your intersecting group identities this has been this, this is a glorification of the self which is kind of the last place that you can try to insert meaning into somebody's life who's fully embraced nihilism, that the entire state of affairs, as Herbert Marcuse, the the critical theorist from the 60s that shaped the world today, said it, it's a protest against everything that is. That's their ethic. That's what they're aiming for is to protest everything that is because they've conflated that idea with liberation. Um, It's freedom from everything. Anything that somebody might dislike, reality itself, sensibility itself, sense-making itself. And so it's, of course, more comforting to live in a false reality, a hyper-real situation, a digital fake manifestation of the world, if that's how you see reality. And this just shows how 
much deeper the philosophy is. And, you know, when we as conservatives and, you know, for those listening who are Christians, want to combat this narrative with truth and you know, it seems like we are just addressing a lot of these very, very, very top line issues. When we talk about um, going against wokeism, when we talk about going against intersectionality, and you know, and each of these things, the gender identity that is fluid and doesn't have a construct that's rooted in reality, a lot of this. James seems if if we can go deeper than that and display for people who are caught up in this what the actual root worldview is of this hopefully that will get people thinking along the lines of why the leftist mentality is to push this type of agenda it's not just about wokeism for sake of itself this goes much much deeper than that and you were actually talking about as well um that there was a chapter in dante's inferno that referred back to this and that was also a fascinating connection yeah i mean we have to understand you even called it a philosophy and i almost want to just correct you it is a theology it is a cancerous mm-hmm. theology this is a spiritual Fair. battle yes um which you know many people will know that that i'm agnostic and therefore it's funny that i would characterize this as a spiritual battle but it must be thought of that way these um the neo-marxists the marxists before them actually did have very spiritual beliefs about how society works how history works about what man's role in the world is and when we get to these kind of neo-Marxists, you, you mentioned the, the, the reference to Dante, um, this kind of nihilistic despair, this rejection of everything, which Herbert Marcuse referred to as the great refusal. He said that the mission, the protestation against everything that is, is what he referred to as the great refusal, the rejection of the entire, not only the entire existing society, but also its form. And he said that's the pathway to liberation. But what he's actually doing when he says that is he's making a reference back to the third canto of of Dante's Divine Comedy, which is in Inferno, which is actually to the group of people who are held outside of hell. They're not even allowed into hell because they refuse to commit to anything. And so they wander around this barren plain in misery, being stung and eaten by bugs as they walk around, just an abject horror. And so Dante in in the poem asks Virgil, you know, what on earth did these people do to deserve this? And they're following a guy with a standard that's blank, a flag that's blank. They're aimless, wandering, trapped, not, not able to get into heaven, obviously, but even rejected by hell for a and what Dante or what Virgil tells Dante is it's because they rejected the idea of morals completely. They re- they 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 ref- and he says they they made the great refusal. They refused everything. And so Marcuse would obviously be aware of this, you know, gigantic work of western literature. And so when he calls his movement a call to the great refusal, um it becomes very clear that this is the vision that he has for liberation is these people who aren't even allowed in heaven or in hell that they just wander around aimlessly and empty and lost following an empty standard but he believed because they had completely embraced what's called negative thinking that by peeling away all of the form and structure of the existing society that the seed of the communist utopia lives within that and the the liberated society can grow from that if we can just strip away all the evil all of the problems all of the power all of the oppression um and so what he's calling for is a you know very nihilistic rejection of everything that is in the hope that this is going to somehow magically lead us 
to a utopian condition, which if you read Inferno isn't exactly what somebody would consider utopian. It's more like, you know, an amplified nasty version of Mad Max or something like that. Uh, and so you have to understand, though, that this is the vision that these people had for the world as a complete rejection of whether it's a theological order whether it's a natural order, whether it's the good, whether it's the beautiful, it's a complete rejection of the entire society and its entire form and its entire basis. And that is the motivating animus of the left. That combined with the idea of revenge against those who have been able to benefit from the ex uh, the existing society so far, uh, which is rooted not only in Marcuse, as I mentioned, but also another guy, Franz Fanon, who wrote, uh, who was a post-colonial guy in France, uh, that advocated that anywhere you have the oppression by uh, one group over another, he considered that all colonization and the, the colonized must respond with violence um, to regain their standing. So what you have is this kind of fusion between this violent rejection of that which is and this um, completely uh, empty nihilistic rejection of that which is. And then you look at you look at Antifa and you're like, oh, that's who they are. Okay, got you. Um, this is deep. This is deep. This is a theological war between um, people who wish not to serve Satan, if you will, but rather to become Satan themselves versus mm -hmm. everybody else. Yeah, and this goes back to the original sin, right, which is, and, and I think you're absolutely right to, to correct me that this isn't just a philosophy. This is theology or a knowledge of God and a total rejection of God being who he is. And that was originally uh, what Satan did and what the original sin was of man is that we want to be God and arbitrate our own reality. And why these types of um, insidious sorts of theologies are so important to recognize the, the underlying premises is because a lot of people think that wokeism or this new uh, gender identity theory or the LGBTQ agenda or, you know, pick pick your current philosophy of the day, that this is something new that's just cropped up in the last five minutes. Maybe the application of it is different in the 21st century than it was, you know, back in the 14th century when, when Dante wrote the Inferno. But these types of theologies or these types of rejections of reality and of God have gone all the way back to the beginning. And so this isn't really anything new. It's just a perpetuation of what mankind has always done, which is either embracing truth and reality and who God is or rejecting truth and reality. And I think you're totally right, James, that it is a spiritual battle. And, um, and, and another time I want to have you on to talk about the reason that you're agnostic, because um, you and I actually started our, our conversation at dinner on that uh, line of, of, um, of thought. And that was fascinating to me um, and to talk to you about you know, spiritual matters. And I think these things are what's so important to, uh, to society, to understanding our own identity as human beings um, created in the image of God and understanding what truth is and being able to distinguish that from falsity and to be able to distinguish reality from hyperreality. And so all of these things are incredibly important. And so in just the last few minutes that we have on, on this show, and I, I hope to have you on again for that conversation and so much more, um, I'm always, I've been fascinated by all of your discussions. Everyone should go to newdiscourses.com uh, to and, and listen to um, to your podcast as well as um, you know read your works. But just in the last couple of minutes that we have here, what's what is in your view kind of the way out of this of being not just red pilled to join the Republican Party? I mean, I think that's so superficial in light of what we've discussed here. But how can people, in your view, best 
um, understand and distinguish truth versus fiction. Okay, sure. So let me just actually, since you brought up the idea of original sin, let me just actually cap a little bit more of that. Marcusa in his first major work, um, Eros of Civilization, literally actually says that we have to reproduce the original sin. He actually says this, and that by eating from the tree of knowledge again, then we will regain our innocence. That's actually what he says. That's his, that's his view. So this is very much couched in going back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis, and it would be for these neo-Marxists as well. It's a repackaging of the same problem that's depicted in, in, in the, the Garden of Eden uh, story in Genesis. So that's very important to understand. And what the goal of that is, is to create a cult of the exalted self. And so when you look at the narcissism and the trans movement, or this navel-gazing focus on race, you see that exalted self. And so what is the answer? The answer turns out to be, and I can't pick any given one, obviously, but the answer turns out to be that we have to start getting back to what we would call a robust theology, where a theology is a very—I'm um, defining a theology broadly as a science of meaning, and I, I mean that quite seriously, and I think that Christian theology is a very mature science of meaning, and there are other sciences of meaning in other religions, other theologies, and there are various Christian ones, obviously. I'm not meaning to get into any huge debates about which theology, but, the, but that there is a science of meaning that relates— not just knowledge, but also ideas about what it means to be a person, what it means to be, what, 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 what goodness means, so what values, you know, a theory of values, a theory of knowledge, a theory of, uh, of being, and a theory of community that we, that, that's comprehensive and cohesive. And that's what theologies provide, whether it's, you know, Calvinism or whether it's, you know, however many points or whether it's Catholicism or whatever. These are actually, even despite their differences, very mature theologies that provide context. And so, Red-pilling, getting away from media, these are in superficial ingredients uh, in the solution, getting away from, I should say, corporate media, um, taking your social media less seriously um, and certainly less literally. Uh, th these are little ingredients, but the bigger ingredient is that you have to start trying to relate you know, who, who are we as people? What does it mean to be people? What is the good? How do we relate to the good? How do we find the good? What's the role of truth? How is, you know, objective truth relevant? These deeper philosophical matters start to put us on, on what I would say is the, the fruit of the American experiment what was the goal of the American experiment, which was to create for the first time in, in, in human history, true common ground, common humanity, common sensibility, common understanding, you know, if we have a capitalist system, everybody's money is the same, so all these other ideas get out of the way. It doesn't matter if you're Catholic or Protestant. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. Your money is still green, as the saying used to go. And whether it's, you know, objective truth is truth for everybody. There is no your truth, my truth. So anything that brings us into the realm of common humanity, which mature theologies all do, anything that brings us—I mean, neither Jew nor Greek, etc., Everything that brings us into a sense of common understanding with one another and common footing with one another brings us out of this exalted theology of the self, or the theology of the exalted self, which of course replaces in the Holy Trinity, it replaces God as the Father with man in himself as the Father. And that was Marx's goal, that's Marcuse's goal, um, that's all of the goals. So it's, it's to getting back to having something 
that we are able to recognize as objective that puts us on common ground as whether it's as humans as sinners as whatever it happens to be and to humble ourselves before that rather than to take the arrogant position that we are the masters of literally everything starting with ourselves who if you look at leftism itself it can't even control themselves um, so that's the path commonality uh, and through a mature robust theology which you don't have to devise your own they exist you know go start to study these things go to if it's your christian go to church pay attention you know get that foundation under yourself what the kids call get based that's what getting based is actually about is understanding yourself in relation to values and knowledge and community which is what a mature theology provides that's why i say this is a spiritual battle Yeah, and C.S. Lewis actually described this as, you know, you can't understand who you are without your relationship orientation to God outside of yourself. And so there's no other uh, way to have a relationship without having that relation of two separate points. And um, and I'm probably describing that uh, less complete than, you know, someone like you, James, who has a math PhD. But C.S. Lewis described this in Mere Christianity really, really well. And I think you're absolutely right that theology and getting back to objective truth and understanding a more mature theology and a knowledge of God is exactly the point. And I always say that I am not a Christian just because I believe in God like like a child might believe in the tooth fairy or Santa Claus, but because I believe the Christian worldview that is rooted in the Bible um, is the best explanation for the reality to which I am presented. We all have to answer these questions that you just articulated. Who are we as humans? What is uh, eternity? Where am I going? Who is the person of Jesus Christ? Do we believe in the Trinity? Do we understand who God is? Do we understand who we are? We all have to answer those questions. And whether we answer them glorifying self and ultimately have this satanic view, um, and it is satanic, or do we have a comprehensive theology that recognizes uh, spiritual beyond and outside of ourselves, which is the definition of God. And so in terms of being a Christian, that's my view of being a Christian and understanding the Christian worldview based in the Bible is an understanding of theology that isn't just, you know, you go to church on Sunday and then you have all of this different buffet of of uh, different policy positions and, you know, I'm a, I'm a Republican just because I believe in capitalism or all of these different things, um, but then have a nihilistic view of humanity, for example, or I can be gender fluid. That's why I think being, for example, you know, a gay conservative is is inconsistent if you understand what the orientation of an LGBT agenda is. And so being a Christian, and I would encourage everyone who's listening to this to understand what's meant by theology and understand that reading the Bible and reading truth is what ultimately will bring us back to reality. And so being a Christian is understanding that there are different explanations of meaning, of value of human beings, as you said, James. There are many different explanations. There are many religions. Um, There are many different theologies. And being a Christian, to me, and I want to have this conversation with you further um, at another time, hopefully we'll do part two, is why the Christian worldview is the best explanation. So at least, though, if we can start there of saying this is a theology and everything that the left, even under the guise of secularism, it truly actually is a theology. 
Um, so thanks so much for joining me today. I really want to talk to you further, but I know we're out of time for today. But um, James, everyone can find you, James Lindsay, at Conceptual James on Twitter. Go to newdiscourses.com. Um, you are really fascinating, and I so appreciate getting to actually meet you in person. And I uh, loved having this conversation. Now that everybody has heard at least this podcast, now you understand like, why um, I was so fascinated to talk to James for hours uh, this weekend. And thanks so much for joining me. And uh, anything else that you want to promote or uh, projects you're working on? Uh, just, you know, you, you plugged the social media. So at Conceptual James, my company is New Discourses. It's at New Discourses. I just released, uh, it, New Discourses just released our first book. I didn't write it. I contributed, but it's really somebody else's book. It's called Counter Woke Craft. It's a very kind of, you know, how do you deal with this problem in administrative, the woke problem in administrative settings? Uh, bureaucratic settings like universities and specific. It was written by an academic who's challenging it in his own setting. Uh, so, you know, I encourage people to check that out. Uh, I've got a book coming out called Race Marxism that uh, is going to summarize uh, critical race theory and explain that exactly what you think, it is actually Marxism using race instead of class, but it's going to make sure that it's absolutely undeniable. Uh, and I hope to be able to get that out within about a month or so. So that's coming. If you pay attention to new discourses, you'll be able to see that coming. You can't pre-order it yet unfortunately so you know go subscribe to new discourses pay attention and keep your eyes open for that and uh, i think it'll be very edifying and helpful for people for that aspect of this uh awesome. spiritual battle we're in awesome yeah and we'll have you back on to to talk about that as well so james Lindsay, thanks so much for joining me today really appreciate your time and uh just all, all of the things that you talk about i find so fascinating and these are the things that we need to be talking about so thanks so much thank you jenna Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.